Cultural restitution claims seem to be increasing in the news lately, most recently with the return of some of the Benin bronzes, a, a thou, uh, thousands of pieces looted from the Kingdom of Benin in the late 19th century and now being returned to Nigeria, which it became a part of, by museums in Germany, the Netherlands, the UK, and as of this past week, even the Metropolitan Museum of Art here in New York. And of course, other claims have made headlines over the past decades, most famously those by Greece for the British Museum to return the Parthenon or Elgin marbles. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we discuss claims for the return of cultural heritage objects around the world with Pierre Lausson, uh, a postdoctoral fellow at the Italian Academy at Columbia University, uh, who recently received his PhD in political science here at the Graduate Center. His dissertation focused on the political motivations for cultural restitution claims by the governments of Colombia, Peru, and Mexico. Pierre is also a practitioner in international arts and cultural culture management, uh, having worked as a French cultural attaché in Latin, Amer Latin America for 10 years and with the Americas Society slash Council of the Americas here in New York. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today on International Horizons, Pierre Lausson. Uh, thanks a lot for your inv invitation. Well, it's a very interesting topic, and I look forward to the conversation. So we mentioned a couple of the most, the best-known cases uh, in the introduction, uh, but perhaps you could tell us a little more about you know, the historical background of how some of these works ended up in museums in Europe and the United States. Uh, to give a kind of basis for this discussion to some of our listeners? Um, sure. Uh, there are different origins for, for the collections that are in dispute today uh, and, and all seem increasingly unacceptable uh, in the eyes of those who want the return of these objects. Um, maybe I would identify four broad uh, phenomena or context in which objects were removed from their um, uh, original um, context. And, and of course, these phenomena are often intertwined, right? So the first one would be loot uh, from wars and conquest. And loot is as old as war itself. So it's definitely not a, a recent phenomenon. Um, uh, we, For example, we see it with the Benin bronzes that were taken from Benin City uh, in the late 19th century during a so-called punitive expedition uh, by the British uh, Imperial Army uh, into what would become uh, Nigeria today. We, we also see it, for instance, in one of the cases that I studied, uh, which is uh, Montezuma's feather head. Uh, it's a, a beautiful object in feathers, in Quetzal feathers, uh, that was taken from Mexico in the early 16th century uh, during the Spanish conquest. Uh, but we also see it m with much more recent examples with uh, the case of artworks that were uh, uh, seized by the Nazis from their Jewish owners. So I guess that would be the first 
the, the first origin. A, a second orig origin that is related to uh, armed conflict is uh, the entire colonial period. And here the example could be the Parthenon marbles, uh, which were taken from Athens when Greece was not an independent state, but a province of the Ottoman Empire. Um, a third origin for this collection is scientific research. Um, I studied how um, uh, uh, an American uh, archaeologist here in Bingham removed uh, objects from Machu Picchu when he discovered, between quotation marks, um, Machu Picchu in the early 20th century. Uh, I saw similar context in Colombia, for instance, in San Agustin, where it is uh, a German archaeologist who took away statues from, from uh, San Agustin. Um, so, um, again, those situations often combine with colonialism and imperialism, um, because those... Um, uh, those objects were taken at a moment when uh, newly independent states did not always have the means to uh, impose the norms they had already passed on the protection of heritage. Uh, and in the same context, we also see the origin of vast collections of human remains from native and indigenous people, uh, and particularly in, in settler states like uh, the US and Canada and, and Australia. And, and maybe the fourth um, fourth origin for this collection would be the development of the habit of collecting. Um, objects were taken, sometimes bought, sometimes stolen, uh, directly to join private and or public collections. Um, and here we see how objects that had a social or religious use in their original context came to be considered as objects of art, appreciated much more for their aesthetic value than for their uh, anthropological use. So those would be, I think, the, the four main um, origins of, of these collections and, and why they are disputed today. Interesting. That's helpful. Um, I mean, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about why you think this is in the news now. Uh, I mean, it's been in the news for a while. I mean, I wrote a book about, you know, the idea of reparations 15 some years ago and, mm -hmm. you know, these kinds of issues were floating around these issues about kind of dealing with past wrongs of which this is, you know, one species sort of. Um, so, you know, why is the Metropolitan Museum suddenly uh, giving back some of its, some, I think, not all from what I understand mm -hmm. in the paper, of its holdings from the Benin bronzes, and forgive my pronunciation of Benin. Uh, yeah, sure. I, I think that we, we can probably explain this both by what is happening like at the international level, and, and maybe I can talk also a little bit about what I did with, with my research, looking specifically at, at what happens within the claiming countries. Um, uh, I, I think that there, there are many different factors. Uh, there is growing awareness worldwide that cultural heritage, uh, that the cultural heritage of some countries has been depleted. That's very much the case in Africa. Uh, for example, um, there are two uh, researchers who were commissioned by uh, the French President Macron to, to write a report about the African collections in, in French public museums. And, and one of their conclusions was that in, in for many Western African countries, uh, the, the vast majority of uh, objects from past centuries 
uh, are actually located in France or abroad in general, but not in those um, in, in those countries themselves. And and I think this awareness comes with greater facilities to travel, uh, the blockbusters exhibitions that the Universal Museums have been organizing over the past decades. So in general, people know that these objects are in these museums. Um, there is also growing awareness of the damages done by trafficking of antiquities and of cultural objects. Um, there is a legal framework that has been st strengthened uh, throughout the 20th century uh, in favor of the idea of returning objects that should not have been removed from their country of origin. Uh, so uh, often under the impulsion, actually, of the, the, the countries that are now claiming uh, these objects, for example, Mexico, um, uh, who was, and Mexico was one of the, the countries that, uh, that was uh, behind the adoption of the 1970 UNESCO Convention. And this text is now widely considered to be a watershed. Uh, moment for returns and restitutions. And the, the problem of this particular text is that it's not retro retroactive. So it, it does not cover uh, some of those cases that I, that we were talking about uh, that um, of objects that were removed uh, in uh, during wars, uh, colonial wars, or during the colonial period in general. Um, I think there is also the influence of post-colonial and decolonial studies in academia. Uh, and those have been pushing museums understood as institutions of uh, white supremacy um, to, to examine the history and origins of their collections. Um, so, for example, last fall, uh, Dan Hicks, who is a curator at um, the University of Oxford, um, published a book called The Brutish Museums that uh, made a, a big splash in, in the world of, of museums. Um, and where he, arg he argued that continuing to exhibit the Benin bronzes specifically, but I, I think the argument can really be extended to other objects, continuing to, uh, to exhibit objects that were seized in the colonial context um, perpetuates the violence that was, uh, that was used against, uh, against the populations uh, in, in, in the former colonized uh, countries. Now, one thing I do with my own research is uh, is to try and understand why this interest has also been growing within the claiming countries. Um, because, well, if those objects have been uh, removed uh, decades or centuries ago, why is it that there seems to be a growing interest in, in recent years and recent decades? So I think that one nuance for this would probably be that uh, it's, there seems to be growing interest because it, those cases are more um, salient in the media, but there has pretty much always been discussions. Like experts, historians in those countries have always known that those objects were there and, and were interest, interested in, in obtaining their return. Now, one thing that it, I think is important to, to introduce here is the idea that cultural heritage is not a thing. It's not, um, it's not something that has an intrinsic value. It has the value that we give it. Heritage is, is a construction. So it says more in a way about who we are today, what it is that we care about today, than what it 
may have meant in the past for the populations who created this object. Heritage is really about our representation of the past, what it is that we keep from this past. And so understanding that, um, I think that in countries that have become independent in the, in the 19th or the 20th century, the objects that are being claimed now have been constructed as part of a national heritage. So claiming them is really a nationalist project. And here I don't mean nationalist as in like a strident, belligerent um, uh, project as we often think when we talk about nationalism, but really like uh, in a very Benedict Anderson way, um, uh, imagining a community of belonging and what it means to be a community in a country today named Nigeria or today named Mexico, which did not necessarily exist um, a few decades or, or centuries before. And I think from my research, I really concluded that these objects serve to coalesce the nation in a way through the many different crises of the nation. So oftentimes you see that uh, in a moment when there is political crisis and economic crisis, those claims can be used to somehow, I wouldn't use the word distract, but really to just like um, remember the whole community of who we are together as a, as a group. Um, and that is also possible, that has been possible in, in, the, in more recent years and more recent decades, because also more pragmatically, um, developing countries can now have the expertise and the infrastructure that, uh, to care for the objects. Um, uh, museums, Western museums often said that, uh, that these countries could not take care properly of the objects, and that was an argument not to return them. This is largely not true anymore. Um, if you go to a country like Mexico, they, are, they have beautiful museums, uh, archaeologists, historians, experts, uh, restorators who are very, very much able to care uh, and speci they are specialized in the, the specific materials that they claim. Uh, even in a country like Nigeria, they, they now have a, a project to build a new museum in Benin City uh, to welcome all the, the bronzes upon their return. So, sorry, this is a really long answer. Um, it's okay. But, uh, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting answer. I mean, um, I was involved in some of these discussions when I was still at the University of British Columbia, which, as you may know, has a very famous museum of anthropology. And, you know, the director in sort of debates about these issues and about the holdings of the museum, you know, the director, a woman named Ruth Phillips, you know, made precisely this argument that, you know, this that they had the most sophisticated facilities and, you know, were best positioned really to maintain these objects, which you know, after all, for many people are the only way they're really ever going to encounter, you know, the cultures that these objects represent, right? So, uh, but it sounds like, you know, just in terms of whatever, greater wealth and sort of modernization, uh, many countries that once might have been too poor uh, to have these kinds of facilities, uh, you know, may, may now have them. Uh, so that sort of argument seems less compelling. Um, I mean, one thing that struck me when I was working on sort of related questions myself was the importance of democracy 
in these kinds of situations. That is to say, you didn't ask an undemocratic country to make reparations for, you know, past injustices. It just didn't really work that way. And I think to some degree, similarly, you're probably not going to have much luck, you know, demanding uh, whatever cultural artifacts that may have been stolen in the past uh, from sort of undemocratic countries in the present. I mean, does that strike you as a factor in explaining you know, what, where these cases arise. I mean, there must be stuff in some sense scattered all over the world by former, you know, former conquerors who've conquered a, a, a group of people and taken some of their stuff and uh, put it somewhere else. And so I, I would think at some level, these kinds of cases would be potentially infinite, but they're not in fact infinite. So maybe you could talk about, you know, the the conditions and the calculations that are, uh, underlie these kind of actions and claims. Um, yeah, I think that there is um, there, there is really um, uh, a question of geopolitics here. Um, uh, we have a very very undemocratic regime, such as that of mainland China, that is uh, very active in trying to obtain the return of, uh, of a lot of objects, particularly that were seized by, uh, France and the UK, um, during the, um, uh, the opium war and, um, uh, and, and the different, uh, conflicts in the 19th century. And they are being, uh, successful at it, um, either by, buying directly these objects at auctions when they come up or by obtaining their return from uh, from museums. Nobody in those cases opposes to China that they are not democratic enough to obtain uh, to obtain these returns. No, no, I, I, um, I simply mean that, you know, you're not likely to get a response from an undemocratic regime, right? Right. The claimant right. can be of any stripe. But the only countries that are really subject to the kind of shame that, you know, really underlies, I think, these kinds of negotiations are democratic countries. Uh, I would agree with that. And I think that it's probably part of our democratic process to re-examine our colonial past and to maybe possibly amend some of the wrongs that we caused uh, in in, in previous centuries. So, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I, and I think that if you take the case of, of France with, um, with uh, Western African countries in particular, um, that, was, that was definitely uh, in the, I would imagine, in the, in the calculations of, of Emmanuel Macron when he commissioned that, that report. Absolutely. Interesting. So, um, I mean, this case of uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art um, comes up just in today's news. So I might as well ask a bit more about that. Um, you know, it seems to me that the Metropolitan Museum of Art must be full of stuff that would count as, you know, potentially, uh, you know, subject to a claim for return. I mean, is that true? And uh, I mean, how, how did they get all this stuff? Is it going to be empty once all these claims are, are made? Uh, how, how is that going to look? Well, yes, definitely in a museum, what we see is always just the tip of the iceberg from everything that is in warehouses and that is being researched or even in some cases are just is being underutilized. But so... 
I think that the, the threat of emptying museums uh, is an argument that has been used by uh, these big museums like the Met, like the British Museum, like the Louvre. Uh, and I actually have an article that is forthcoming in the International Journal of uh, Arts Management, Law and Society uh, about that. Um, and I really do not think that is going to be the case uh, for, for several reasons. Um, one being that because, as I was mentioning before, uh, a lot of these cases are not covered by international conventions. Agreeing to a return does not really set uh, a legal pre uh, precedent. It might set like a moral or ethical precedent that may encourage others to do the same. And maybe we could um, put the, the recent announcements by the Met Museum that they will return their bronzes in that category. But each of these cases is historically situated. And so I do not believe that we have, that we run the risk, if there was such a, a risk, to, to, to suddenly open the gates of the museum and that would be a free-for-all. For, and, and, and we would, br uh, we would bring everything back to their, to their country of origin. Country of origin between quotation marks again. Another reason is that there is simply... This is no one's plan. Nobody wants those museums closed and emptied. Maybe some activist of the decolonizing museums movement who are a little more radical than others, but but it really is no one's plan. And, and that I saw during my research in Latin America and in my conversations with people who have worked uh, in, in other countries, including Nigeria, Nobody in those countries ever argues that they want all these objects back for different reasons, because they know they could not care for all these objects themselves, because they also believe um, in the value of a human, of um, uh, a world uh, wild, uh, a worldwide uh, cultural heritage. And so, for instance, if we see the case of Nigeria, um, the, the Nigerian authorities have already said that they would consider, a, in some cases, to leave the Benin bronzes in the museums where they are currently displayed if the museums would acknowledge uh, Nigerian property of the object. So, so I, I don't think we should see the movement as so radical that it would aim at emptying the museums. I, I do not. I do not believe that. I mean, another question that came up in the work that I did, which again is sort of parallel to some of this stuff, you know, had to do with the question of how far back do you go, right? How far back is it, you know, something that was stolen as opposed to something that was traded in a kind of fair and square way? I mean, the Elgin Marbles strikes me as a case here that's sort of complicated, right? I mean, the, as you said, the uh, Greece was a province of the Ottoman Empire at the time. Uh, and as I understand it, it was given sort of fair and square by the uh, Ottoman Pasha to Lord Elgin. You know, now you can. That, look that's the position of the British Museum. It's disputed okay. how square and okay. fair. Tell, it <laughs> okay, tell us more about that. What happened? Um, so, no, I, I, honestly, I do not recall um, uh, absolutely all the details, but indeed, uh, the ambassador. Uh, the, the, the British ambassador at the time obtained a firman from uh, the, the, the Ottoman uh, emperor at the time, from the sultan, to, um, 
to remove and make copies of uh, the, the friezes, the, this uh, marble sculptures that, that were uh, uh, at the front and around, around the temple. It, it is unclear as to whether that included the authorization to leave Greece with those. And, and in this particular uh, case, there is also the dimension that those are not standalone objects. Those were parts of a monument, uh, which is an argument that has been used by Greece, but I think a lot of experts also agree on that, that the real meaning and function of these objects is to be on a monument, not to be considered as just standalone statues that, that could be in someone's salon or or in the room of the of a museum. Sorry, if that was your your question. Um, well, right. I mean, I, I'm just trying to sort through the problem that you know it's that the Elgin marbles, so called, uh, are you know now not right. now not where they were first produced or located um, and removed under you know now sort of how should we say, complex and contradictory terms. Uh, but, it, you know, at the time, they may have been regarded as, you know, stolen fair and square, so to speak. Um, and, you know, our perception of these, uh, of who owns these things kind of changes over time. And I think it's just a tricky problem to sort out. I, I, I agree completely with that. Uh, and and I think that t- that takes me back to what I was saying about one way we should think about cultural heritage is as really a, a construction, not something that is once and for all considered as important for X or Y reason. Um, so how far back do we go? I don't know. Um, today in 2021, there are some objects that are considered by important by some people belonging to specific communities at the national or the subnational level. Is it possible that these objects will not matter in 50 years or 200 years from now? Yes, it is possible. Just the same way as objects that are not really being considered uh, important today may become important in, 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 a few, in a few centuries. But I think that we have the same thing here, um, or here in Western countries in general. Um, how many houses, buildings have been destroyed at some point in history to make way for highways, new high-rises, because we thought they were not important. And today we think about those and we we feel sorry that they were raised or destroyed at the time, because we give them an importance that they didn't have at the time. Yes, it's a construction and it's never a done a done deal. I think that uh, returns and restitutions are a process more than than specific moment. There is um, that there are arguments that can change, and 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 the very process of returning can lead to something new and different. I think that I've heard that again, time and again, um, in in museums uh, where people say that they were. Particularly in the holding museums, they were afraid that they were going to lose something if they accepted to return a specific object. And then they realized that they created new relationships with 
experts and, and audiences through this process of returning. So to give one example uh, among, among many that I encountered in my research about um, uh, people at the, at the D. Young Museum of Fine Arts in, in San Francisco um, uh, entered in a lengthy negotiation with the Mexican government back in the 1980s over the fate of some frescoes that had been found in Teotihuacan uh, exported uh, into the U.S. illegally, probably at the end of the 1960s, and that were given to uh, bequeathed uh, to the um, to the museum. And and in the publications of the museums about this return process, they all say that they is by returning half of this collection to Mexico, they really established a completely new relationship with the Mexican authorities in charge of cultural heritage, and that led to several. Project, uh, projects in common to develop new exhibitions, to exchange objects. So w- we shouldn't necessarily think uh, of returns as like a, a zero-sum game, but really as as possibly a win-win, uh, a win-win process. Yeah, I think um, these are processes, as you say, that are in effect, you know, negotiations over long periods of time. And, right. Absolutely. And I think you're, you know, absolutely correct to say that, you know, we evaluate the significance of these objects and places, you know, very differently over time. I mean, some of the great discoveries of, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls or something were something found by a farmer out in a field. You know, they'd just been discarded. Nobody thought they were important, right? So these things really Mm -hmm. change over time. And I mean, I think one, you know, fairly obvious reason that some countries want some of these things back is simply for tourism reasons, right? I mean, they can put them on display that that will attract tourists, that will help economic development, you know, and that's perfectly fine. I mean, there's no reason that that's a a bad thing. It's just, you know, there's a motivation uh, for doing this that, you know, uh, some places have and some don't. I mean, the, the question of the sort of varying evaluation of things and property, you know, when I was doing the work that I'm referring to, you know, in this how far back do you go question led me ultimately to kind of throw up my hands and say, Proudhon was right, property was theft, and it's only the, the only question is who stole it first, you know? I mean, it's a very difficult kind of problem to sort out. But, um, you know, so I think you've got a very, uh, you know, nuanced kind of a sense of, you know, how this works. And it reminds me of, you may know, Elazar Barkhan's work uh, up at Columbia, mm-hmm. of course. up where you are, I guess, at Columbia. Uh, and, you know, the way he sees history as a kind of a negotiation between various parties and, and that sort of thing. And I think there's, you know, something, not everything, but something certainly to that as well. So how do you think this is all going to kind of play out? I mean, are we in a, I mean, it seems to me in a way, having watched this for a couple of decades now, that it's something that kind of comes and goes and waxes and wanes and, you know, but, but it's obviously a, an issue that, you know, is going to be a, a source of some conflict uh, between those who have and those who have lost, you know, various objects um, I mean, do you? How do you see this playing out in the near future? Well, I think that if one thing that is there is one thing that the social sciences have taught me is that we should be very careful about making predictions <laughs> about the future. Um, but um, 
Yeah, there, there is no denying that right now there is a dynamic, especially, for example, with uh, with the Benin bronzes. Uh, the, the developments in that case over the past three months have been uh, really nothing short of dramatic uh, with... Uh, with uh, Germany announcing that they would engage in the process of returning all the bronzes to Nigeria by 2022, which was followed by similar declarations by, by smaller museums in in the UK, not the British Museum, and and again uh, as of yesterday by by the Metropolitan Museum. So, but again, I'm not entirely sure that the dynamic on this specific case. Uh, will uh, necessarily influence others. Uh, again, here, the historic specificity of the conditions under which those objects uh, left Nigeria, uh, or what would become Nigeria, do not necessarily exist in other, uh, in other cases. Um, so I want to be really careful, uh, even though I do think that at the very least, Today, the, the big museums in the Western world uh, have to engage in, and they are doing it up to up to a point, uh, into a process of doing more provenance research into their collections and and re-examine how legitimate their their holdings are. Uh, and I think that this is some something that is not just demanded from within academic circles. Uh, we have. Um, museum trustees, board members, and and even to some extent audiences themselves for greater transparency. So I think we are going to see more and more uh, of public acknowledgement of the disputed nature of collections. Uh, And in some cases, specifically like the Benin Bronzes, where it was um, uh, really loot that is that has been historically uh, a knowledge researched um, we might see some uh, some returns happening again not necessarily all of it uh, because because the claiming countries might very well see their own interest you were mentioning tourism why not that might be a motivation to leave some of these objects uh, in other countries as ambassadors in a way so so without anticipating a very important movement, I would imagine that we will see more of those cases happen, definitely. Well, thank you. I think you've learned the lesson of that important social scientist, Yogi Berra, the first citizen of Montclair, New Jersey, where I live, who famously said, predictions are hard, especially about the future. <laughs> and that is actually indeed one of the important lessons to learn from social science. So thanks very much, Pierre Lausanne. This is a really fascinating discussion and a fascinating set of issues, and you're obviously going to be in demand for a long time to come. Uh, I want to thank Pierre Lausanne for uh, sharing his insights about cultural restitution claims around the world. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Meryl Sovner for her production assistance, Christo Voinov for his technical assistance, and I want to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. 